Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest tonight is Jason M. Thornberry. He has shared his poetry in numerous literary journals and magazines. He's a man who has seen and experienced life in ways that many of us could never imagine. Tonight he's here to share his work. Hello, Jason. How are you tonight? Great. Great. Great to be with you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. It makes me feel good. All right. Let's start this poetic journey. (laughs) What is poetry, my friend? Poetry. Poetry is, uh, I'd say it's language distilled. It's poetry. It's communication through the compression and concentration of language. It's rhythmic. So when someone refers to a piece of writing as being poetic, they're referring to the inherent musicality of language. And uh, poetry capitalizes on that aspect of communication. You take a piece like uh, John Updike's Player Piano, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you read it, but it was as fun for me to read as it must have been for him to write. And uh, you'll see you'll see the way he plays the sound in the poem. It's onomatopoeic. So he talks about uh, my stick fingers click with a snicker. And he's talking about playing a piano. And every word that he uses sounds like what it is. You take a word like hiss. Hiss sounds like, like the act of hissing. If something's hissing, it sounds like the word hiss. Smash, bang, crash, those are all onomatopoeic words. And inherently, they are are poetic words in their own way. Um, Poetry, for me, it it differs from the more uh, expansive nature of prose. Say, the newspaper article or the short story, the novel, the epic novel. Talking of which, the epic novel or series, uh, Proust, in uh, in Search of Lost Time, he spends more than 100 pages of the first book, Swan's Way. More than 100 pages he spends describing the mundane or seemingly mundane act of waking up. But in a, a few short lines, poetry condenses time and events an experience, an emotion, or a sensation. You take a poem like We Real Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks, and you can condense an entire life, you know, albeit a fairly short life, in a few stanzas, as she does when she describes a group of pool players. And she says, mm-hmm. we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we, sh- we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. Succinct, mm. precise. And again, that's language distilled. 
Mm. Or you can describe dragging a suitcase full of unopened presents on Christmas Day to a motel where you spent the night after your mother got drunk and attacked you. Mm. In the poem, in nine stanzas, in that poem, I describe searching the crevices and corners of this anonymous hotel room for elusive sleep. And the voice of my mother was still echoing in my head all that time. I, I published that poem um, last year about mm-hmm. that very incident. It was something that took place in uh, 2014, so eight, eight years ago. I, I live in Seattle, and I yes. was down visiting her in California when this happened. So I, I fled her house with a suitcase full of unopened Christmas presents for my father's side of family because my parents are divorced. And so it was... Mm-hmm. It was I, it was my escape from the house, and then the first thing I did, which is the first thing I do with everything, is is you know a traumatic event or or even a, a pleasurable event. If I'm alone, I have to write about it. That's just a part yes. of me. I I have to write about it. And you know, Ocean Vong said that uh, you know poetry was a way of reclaiming language for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's an act of empowering myself through language. All right. Poetry can well, let me ask this and, question. Let me ask this question. Sure, let me ask sure, this question. Sure. Because you're on a roll. I'm not. I'm Professor in you is coming out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to have class for a couple of days. But... All right. <laughs> That's great. So if you had to distill poetry down to four or five words, what is it from your heart? Your heart. What is it? From my heart. Yes, sir. It's it's empowerment through language. Language. Oh wow. Language belongs to people who have power. I mean, that's obviously more than four words. Language mm-hmm. belongs right. to people who have the power. To me, the means to be heard. But my story, Michael. My story. My poems. They belong to me and to my mm-hmm. unique experience. And my poetry yes. and all my writing actually is informed by my unique experience. Wow, very nice. Very, very nice. So again, knowing what you know about poetry, everything you know, why then is it important? you potentially shared some of that, but I just want to go into detail. Why is it sure. important that we do what we do? Well, it allows us to see the world from, from multiple perspectives. I mean, we, we, we can find a home on the page in the spaces between the words, you you, but you don't get the same thing when you take in something from other mediums, the, the, what I call passive uh, mediums like television or film. You know, when you read a poem, interpreting its purpose, you know the writer and you know yourself mm-hmm. more deeply. You know, a good mm-hmm. a good poem can change the way you see the world. Mm. And, and poetry is also mm. important because poetry never lies. Every other me- medium is is riddled with art. They're riddled with falsehood. I mean, you know, the medium we consume every day, every day is bound and anchored to the biases of its of its creators. And poetry is free of these limitations. Wow. Film, TV, nicely stated. Yeah, yes. thank you. But, but, nicely, nicely, nicely stated. So again, as you think about your work, what are some of the predominant themes that come to mind? Themes, you mean? Yes. 
of your work? Uh, well, my, my writing it tends to examine family, the family dynamic. I mean, I, I talk about a lot about um, sort of the intricacies of the family and, and absurdities of, of family life. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, you know, Generation X. I'm, I'm 51, mm-hmm. so I'm, I am the direct product of divorce. I'm a latchkey kid or former latchkey mm-hmm. kid. I was, for the first 11 years of my life, uh, an only child. You know, came home from school, mm-hmm. walked, walked a few blocks home from school, and let myself in the door with a key and sat and watched TV and did homework and read books. You know. Um, but also, mm-hmm. though, another theme is that I, I look at disability, um, you know, particularly my own disability. And uh, if I had to say, uh, if I had to, to look at a genre as matching what I what I do, I'd, I'd, call, I'd say realism, whether it's poetry mm-hmm. that I write or fiction or creative nonfiction. So. All right. Well, please share, Paul. Okay, well, this actually, the first one I'll share is um, the one I just talked about, actually. It's called Wide Awake in an Empty Motel. Into December night, I drag a suitcase full of unopened presents over scars in the broken road. Fugitive from drunken wrath, I find an empty motel beside a teeming freeway. 1,100 miles from home is a stiff bed with stiffer sheets scuffed suitcase against the wall. Heart pounding, I peel the curtain, peering into the vacant, bewildering dark. Where is the moon? Luminous place, a glittering dinning sign beckons. And so, with a cup of coffee and a booth by the door, I hold my journal tight, and I struggle to keep the senseless December night at bay. If I can capture on the page... Can I turn my back on it? Returning at last to my room, I pull the curtains together, searching in crevices and corners for elusive sleep, your voice still echoing like broken glass. Thank you. Wow. Jason, what was the purpose of that particular poll? What's the purpose? Well, I, like I said, that was it was really... Um, it was I, I found solace in, in writing about a traumatic experience, and that's really what draws me to poetry and draw and drew me to writing. Really, it was it was something that when something happened to me that I couldn't explain to myself, I couldn't make sense of. I, I found I had to write about it, and in writing about it, a really really great professor of mine, Mildred Lewis, told me that we write in order to figure out what we're trying to say, and she was right because when I when I sit down and write, and I always I always start pen and paper. I I, I don't. I, I mean I write I, I revise on 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 a screen. I do all I do other drafts on on a screen. But I always start with pen and paper because that's how I how I how I began as a kid writing. But when I do that, I always find myself knowing more about myself and knowing more about the experience, the subject, the, the people involved. Yes, yes. Let's go back for a moment. You talked about being a kid. What was an sure. early experience 
where you learn that poetic language had power. An early experience. Uh, has to be my grandmother listening to her right. read to me as a little boy mm-hmm. in Oregon. I, I uh, grew up in Southern California, but every summer, the whole summer, I would go up to Oregon and stay with my grandparents. And that's why I, I basically where I learned to write and why I decided that that's what I want to do. And and she taught me to read as a, as a little boy when I was four. She taught me to read. And because I essentially grew up without television, we lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. I gravitated toward books at, a, at an early age, and that's what I got for Christmas. Back then it was Stephen King. I was a Stephen King nut. And yes. every Christmas and birthday was the new Stephen King. And uh, my grandma taught me to read. And she taught me that words were alive. You know, words were living things by themselves. You know, letters are just parts like a, a, a carburetor or a gasket. But when you connect them, they come to life and they breathe and they function. I used to look at words as a kid and see them as these unique creatures. You know, poetry mm-hmm. teaches us that language is alive. And, and that's also part of why I think poetry is it's it's hard it's hard if not impossible to translate it you know i mm-hmm. I, I have volumes of pushkin because i'm a big lover of russian lit and yes. i've heard it read in russian i've tried translating it myself i've read rimbaud and baudelaire and while the translations are beautiful they don't capture mm-hmm. the musicality of the originals so unlike with mm-hmm. fiction and nonfiction, which come closer Right. You know, first of all, I want to share with you that I moved to Washington, D.C. from Oregon. So where in Oregon were you? Uh, I, I, I still go there. I, I just came back from, from Newport, Newport, Oregon, Newport. midway up on the coast. Yeah. Well, we have a lot in common. I traveled to Newport many times. I was really? in Corvallis. Yes, okay, I was I in Corvallis. Corvallis. Very well. Yes. Yes. I was a professor at Oregon State University for a really? long time. Really? Um, until I retired, yes. Wow. <laughs> what, what, All right, what yeah, I already you? like you. I already what, like what you. What are you in D.C.? <laughs> what, we're, what, we're, we'll talk about it offline. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you everything. So <laughs> let's focus. So, <laughs> so when you think about a poem, how does it begin for you? With an idea, a form, or an image? Um, wow, I don't know. I think I think the 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 prose writer in me, you know, with for the it always begins with an image that kind of becomes a sentence that that sort of sits on my tongue, like like mm-hmm. an object you play with, like the, sort of like a like a a puzzle piece that like a. a a crossword puzzle, and, I, and I'm flipping it around my tongue, and I'm not feeling its edges and contours. And sometimes I'll just have a sentence, and it'll begin right there. One sentence, like in the Old Testament, begets another. And so the idea, of course, the goal is that these sentences link to a coherent thought, and they tell a story or paint a picture that tells a story. But sometimes the sentence will wake me up. The middle of the night. It did the other night, and I'll, I'll reach for my phone now. It's a new habit I've taken. I'll, I'll text the idea to myself because if I don't, it'll fly away. 
and it'll mm-hmm. visit another writer somewhere in the world, <laughs> and then another until one of them is smart enough to capture it, you know, like a moth, wow. and pin it to the page. Mm-hmm. Wow. I like the way you think. Please share another poem. Okay, let's see. This one's called Yellow Moon. Yellow moon glared a hole in the sky between crooked palm trees, vacated bird's nests poking from the fronds. Certain spiders occupied them now. It was after 10, and she could still feel the day's heat circulating up from the streets. Months like these had never fully cooled before dawn between apartment complex and sidewalk. The security gate hung ajar, narrow stripes of flaking rust erupting beneath black paint. She passed it, keeping her eyes on the entryway to her apartment, carrying her daughter, coming closer with each step, passing over brittle grass, catching herself in widening divots where none remained, only dirt and pebbles. She slowed, taking careful steps. Her daughter was heavier tonight. Her landlord stood in the balcony, arms outstretched, palms on the metal railing. She watched her newest tenants like a wolf peering from a clifftop. Thanks. Wow. Jason, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? It hurts, it hurts me to write poetry because it forces me to live in it. To, because I, mm. when I write something, I, I, it's always, you know, I always write about the, my lived experience. And so, yes, it does hurt, Michael, because mm-hmm. I always write about something and it's like picking a scab. Say you're taking a needle and you're dragging it across the scab and picking at it. And that's what mm-hmm. it feels like because to get it right, I have to live in it. I have to feel the spaces between the words and, and relive, re-experience the pain, the anxiety, the frustration again and again until I get it right. And, and I might work on a piece. Uh, I published a piece last year that I, I it was my first poem ever and it was really heavy handed and and mm-hmm. awkward the first draft and I let it sit for a long time and came back to it probably four years later, three years later and it that piece was an emotional piece as well but it, it at the end of it at the end of writing it at the end of this pain was a was a I don't want to call it a, a perverse pleasure because it wasn't sexualized, but it was strange, an alien pleasure in having mm-hmm. having done it, so having having finished it. Well, do you have it with you? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's actually um, it's called it's it's about an experience, another experience. Um, with with uh, a family member, and uh, it's called "Here's Your Father." Here's your father. Uh, Here's your father, she said, and she ripped him out, 
handing him to me like a dentist pulling a tooth. I was pregnant, she said. Maybe the last one I took with him before you were born. The photograph was rigid and impeccably square. I held it up to the light. The image captured them on the side of the road, a foot apart, along the passenger side of a faded yellow Volkswagen. That's the car, she said. He lived it after they stood up. Told him to take his pillow, she said. In the photo, his hair was wavy, sideburns long, mustache dark, t-shirt blue, hand hovering away from her stomach. I guess she wasn't too far along. Pretty and young, in a green blouse with frilly sleeves, my mother's hair passed her shoulders, dark brown and straight. Distracted, she looked off into the distance. In the overexposed photo, my parents became ghosts, doused with a bucket of light, that little yellow car hovering behind them, a glimmering mirage. He was so different then, she said, absently turning the heavy pages of the old photo album. My visit nearly over, I slipped the photo into my jacket pocket and kissed her cheek. Thank you. Wow. You know, your writing, based on what you've shared so far, there's so much emotion involved. My question to you is, do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? I, I, don't, I, don't, know if, I don't know if a person can be called a human if they don't feel strong emotions. I mean, even if we, even right. if we, <laughs> even if we look at a person and say, oh, that person is, is vacuous or, you know, they're practically a, a, a mannequin because they don't seem to show emotions. We all feel things because we're people. Mm-hmm. Yes. We, are, we aren't all necessarily able to maybe, – I mean, maybe we, we hold things back from ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't express ourselves well. But I think everybody has something in them. Everybody can write because we all have mm-hmm. a voice. Mm. You know, you've already shared that you've that you you've read extensively. And what I want to focus on just for a second is the importance, or maybe it's not the importance, of the accessibility of a poem. My question is, should one employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? It depends on the piece and it depends on the writer. I don't think you have to though. I mean I think one should always read a poem for the, you should you should read a poem multiple times but you should first do yes. it like you're eating a piece of cake you should do it for the pure pleasure of the language you should feel the words like i said the way the way the way you're tasting something you should taste the words and then i mean like say with shakespeare's sonnets with which are beautiful and they're and they're some of the the greatest poetry i've read you 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 read them and you find you, you through the shapes and through the, the the rhythm of the language you you feel and parse out what the the writer is trying to say. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't think I don't think a poem has to necessarily be something that the person um, analyzes 
So there, I mean, obviously, obviously you can. There have been there there are libraries full of books about, you know, uh, Canterbury Tales and 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 mm-hmm. the Wasteland and and Dante. Everything. There there are volumes of, of books about what poems mean. But mm-hmm. again, poems mean different things to the to reader. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Well. I've got the biggest smile on my face because <laughs> you used one word, and it was the word cake. And you may wonder why it is <laughs> like a cake, because that's a question that I ask my friend. <laughs> so let's imagine for a moment that a poem is like a cake, all right? What do you view as being the prevalent ingredients that go into this concoction we call a poem? Well, I, th- I think emotion obviously goes into that, definitely. The first thing mm-hmm. is, yeah, someone could say, well, a person that doesn't think deeply, as you, as you were saying, might have trouble writing poetry, or not necessarily think deeply, but one that doesn't express themselves well might not be able to write poetry, but emotion is a, is the key ingredient. It's like, like the sugar or the flour. I mean, you have to have the emotion, I would, I would say it's more like the sugar, really. You have to have the emotion there because everything else feeds from that. That's the source. All right. Anything else? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I use, the, I, use the, I compare it to cake, but to me, poetry, I, I guess I do, I do that because language for me is like food. Uh, okay. Well, uh, good, good tell book. me more. I, I, I want to hear everything. Well, tell me more. <laughs> I well, like that. I, mean, I finished finish a good book and I feel full. I feel full like I just, mm. just wow. had a great meal. You know, and, and, and I've and I've finished books that weren't very pleasurable. I've forced myself to finish them. Usually mm-hmm. I don't. Usually I put them down after a few pages or even paragraphs if they don't grab me. But a, a good book. Feels me makes me feel full and satisfied. I'll give you an example, um, and this isn't poetry, this is prose, but Burroughs uh, Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky, the last, the last paragraph of that book the, describing the, the, the funeral, that just, I, I carried that book around with me for, for a month, and this was during the winter, um, probably 10, year, 10 or 12 years ago in Seattle, and it was raining like crazy as it does here. And uh, the book, it was a, a trade paperback, and the book was swollen with rain because it, and I'd left it on the bus at one point, I think, and uh, it was beat. It was just beat, but and, and I sort of felt the way the book felt. I sort of felt the way the book looked at the end of reading. I felt like, wow, I've experienced, I've lived an entire lifetime in in these pages, and that's I think that's you know it goes along I guess with the comparison to food in that a book is supposed to evoke the sensations. You know, good writing evokes right. all the five sen- senses. Well, think about good writing. All great writers have great writing influences. And you've mentioned a couple of people, but who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes, my friend? Um, for poets, I, with poets, I'd say people like June Jordan, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, William Carlos Williams, uh, 
Emily Dickinson and James Wright, uh, Denise Levertov, Wordsworth. I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, I'm a huge Russian literature person. I love Dostoevsky. I used to want to do a PhD in Russian lit and teach Russian lit, but I don't think that's going to ever happen. I'm I'm 51 now, but by the time I I finish my my, uh, defense, I'd be what, 57? So I don't think that's happening. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> no. not old. That's not old. <laughs> Being 59, yeah. that's not old. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's I'm, still I'm, a baby. I'm, I know I'm not old, but I, but I just think I'm, I'm maybe maybe past that stage where someone's okay. going to give me tenure for a PhD. So, you know. But my, my goal you know, is to write... I want to teach in an MFA program. That's my goal is to teach creative writing. I, I teach right now. I teach uh, creative nonfiction at Seattle Pacific University. I teach a mm-hmm. class called uh, Writing Our Memories. And wow. uh, it's where we sit and we, we write about our lives. I, I give them prompts every week. Um, last week's prompt was what have you inherited from your family, your your parents, your grandparents. Further back, we discussed uh, a, a short essay by Tommy Orange, who, who wrote a great book called There, There, about you know the lives of, of a group of Native American people. And um, mm-hmm. fa- fantastic book. And so I, I use the reading to inform what they're going to write about that day. And that's what I want to mm-hmm. do. That's my that's my goal is to continue writing to teach writing wonderful you know when i was a little bit younger still in my 50s in terms of russian literature i read dostoevsky's crime and punishment yeah and yeah. uh the brothers cameras off yeah and when i read those i would pull you know there's a little light on my phone I was able to see the, the print and everything, but I pulled the covers over my head because I wanted to immerse myself in the words, in wow, the power that, of the that, words. It was beautiful. That's, that's beautiful. That's what I'm talking about, the power of the words. Yes. yes. The power of the words. Very, very nice. Well, look, let's take a brief break, and we'll be right okay. back. All right. back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I am thoroughly enjoying my conversation with Jason M. Thornberry. That name needs to be in lights. Jason M. Thornberry, everybody. Jason, are you there? Yes, how are you? How are you doing? <laughs> Thank well, you. Well. <laughs> Please share a poem. Okay, this this is a prose poem. I don't know if you if you've read uh, Carolyn Forche. 
but uh, she's no, another favorite no, of mine. And uh, she wrote a great prose poem called The Colonel. This is one of mine. It's called Fool's Gold. And uh, let's see, it goes like this. Used to be is never going to happen again, he said, to anyone, to everyone who passed. He stood on the corner in his torn trousers and stained jacket beyond the awning of the cafe. His beard was long. He looked like he hadn't slept. And the passing people avoided eye contact because, he said, we live in an age different from the one your folks' folks left behind. They saw the Great Depression. But us? We see inverted collapse. Implosion. And he said it's because we didn't have a great war to fight or trial to overcome. Because the word adversity was full of mystery to most. He said we'd slowly drown within ourselves. To him, it was like sitting in the ocean, listening to the air softly squeak from a tiny hole in the side of a raft. You know you can't swim, he said. So you raise your voice. You talk and talk and talk to drown out the sound of the whistling air. When you finish talking, you're still you. Notable having lived and consumed. That's all. And then, when the whistling's gone, you're struggling to swim, to stay afloat, to be something, to make a dent in this world. And after all that talk about your accomplishments, you're no closer to being like your grandparents, contributing more to the world than what you throw away every day. And the collapse? It's still waiting for you, right here as you kick your legs in the water. Strolling past him, eyes glued to their phones, people found ways not to see the man. But I saw him from where I sat, and I wrote down every word. We'll be smashed down, he said, privilege, into nothing. And all that glitter we spent our lives adorning ourselves with will make the mediocrity we've nurtured shine like fool's gold. That's it. Oh. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form, what is your take on the editing process? I tend to edit like crazy and, and I, I, I'm guilty of, of publishing things and, and looking back at them going, ah, oh, if I could just fix that, if I could just take that word out, if I could just add that word that I'm seeing in my head that's not on the page or on the screen or in the, or in, you know, that, that isn't, isn't there. And, um, I did that with this poem I just read. I, 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 I read it and reread it and reread it and kept coming back to it and adding things. It was, it's actually a poem I, I wrote based on, um, we moved, I moved to California with my wife in 2019 to go to school to Chapman mm-hmm. University. And um, I used to go to a cafe before the pandemic shut everything down. This is 2019, late 2019. And I would go to this cafe and it's kind of a, I guess, uh, kind of conservative part of 
California, Orange County, and um, I guess mm-hmm. that's, that's an understatement. Orange County is quite conservative, but you didn't see uh, too many people experiencing homelessness. And when you did, mm-hmm. they really stood out. Um, and this gentleman I saw would just kind of hang out outside this cafe where I'd go to write after after class. I'd go every single day and write and, until my wife got off work and, and met me, and then we'd, we'd walk home. And um, so I, I saw this man, and I, I didn't write down what he said, uh, but I did. I did sort of imagine maybe his, what his world could be, and that's that's how that, that's where that came from. You know, speaking of homelessness as an issue, there is so much happening in our world in terms of different isms. In terms of other kinds of issues, you name it, it's happening. You name it, you name it, you name it, it's happening. What I want to know from you is, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? The the role of the poet is the ambassador of truth. June Jordan said that poetry made telling the truth possible. And for Keats, a poet was kind of the most unpoetic thing you could be. He meant that that a poet had no identity except perhaps that which is imposed on him or her through their work. Um, you know, someone finds out that you write poetry, they, they look at you a little differently, depending on how they feel about poetry. And yes, the role of the poet and the duty of the poet are the same as the role of any artist, which is, for me, to tell the truth whether it's through the lens of a camera or a series of notes on a saxophone or a series of sentences in a book. And, but it's also really the role of the poet is to leave the world better than, than you found it when you got here. Poets wow. and writers, they're watchers. We watch the world, we interpret it as it swims past us, we absorb and we learn. And our other role is uh, to teach others what we've learned. Like I said, mm-hmm. leave it better than you found it. And that's why mm-hmm. I wanted, wanted to become a teacher, because teachers in my life have had, had the greatest impact. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend, I'd love to take one of your classes. Because I'm sure <laughs> I, you I are dynamic. You so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd love Thank to. <laughs> what I'd like you to do, though, right now, is to tell me about a poem you were proud of writing, but afraid to share for fear of misinterpretation. Um. Hmm. I wrote a poem about, and this is going to make me sound like a real kind of basket case, but uh, I wrote hey, a poem. I, I'm a basket case. I know it. <laughs> I embrace it. I embrace it, man. Yeah, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a poem a book. about uh, <laughs> an experience that I had, and this is going going back again to uh, my short time in California before the pandemic brought my wife mm-hmm. and I back to, to Seattle. Um and this again, like I said, uh, referring back to feeling like a basket case, I wrote a poem called Birthday Dinner. It was uh, about about just that, a birthday dinner that went horribly wrong. And I haven't I have I haven't really shown it to a lot of people. I haven't right. I I I've submitted it here and there. Um hasn't been picked up yet. I do have mm-hmm. faith because that's how it goes. Um mm-hmm. I I think I published 
26 poems in the last two years in various oh, wow. journal, journals and things. Congratulations, man. Yeah. Got, <laughs> because some people can't more. publish any, so congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> oh, you. I've got, I've got six more. Yeah, I've got six more coming out in the next few months. Um, <laughs> oh. But, but and, and this 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 will hopefully be one that comes out later on. But mm-hmm. uh, again, mm-hmm. like I, I, talk, I talked about um, poetry being uh, the expression being a form of solace, uh, providing solace, um, mm-hmm. healing wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think June Jordan talked about poetry as exorcism. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. And so this poem is, is about about that experience as I as I experienced it, and when I read it later on, it it hurt to write it, as mm-hmm. as, as we talked about, but it felt good being finished with it. Yeah, I understand. You know, as I shared in the opening, you've been through so much, so much, and my question is, and I probably already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you find any connection? between your health, physical or mental, and your relationship with poetry? Yeah. Uh, mental health, absolutely. If, if I don't feel, I mean, my health affects my writing in general. Um, mm-hmm. I feel extremely lucky despite um, having faced some, some difficulties. Yes, yes. Um, but I and I feel, I feel lucky. But um, I think if 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 I'm not in the right frame of mind, it's difficult to write, to be effective as a writer. And and mm-hmm. but then again, that's also you know Richard Bausch, uh, one of my professors, um, a great writer. One of the, one of his commandments, one of the things he taught us was that you you have to be able to write anywhere, and um, and that also means you have to be able to write under any circumstances. Because what you write, you're inevitably going to re- revise it, and and mm-hmm. it's like like a pot, a, a lump of clay becomes a pot because you you've revised the clay, you revised the clay and shaped it until it becomes something else. Mm-hmm. Please share a poem. Sure, actually, I'll, I'll read the one that um, I was talking about a moment ago. It's called Birthday Dinner. All right. Into the night I blend with traffic from light to light. Back on my plate, my white napkin lays like folded like a flag of surrender. A purple sash of outrage across your shoulders, complimenting exploded capillaries, peppering my stepfather's cheek. The sycophant sitting beside you, agreeing, nodding, fretting, confirming. I was a fool for not seeing, a fool for not agreeing, a fool for resisting your logic. Mother's Day we spoke but a minute, your birthday even less. Months later the phone vibrates on my desk, your hello a butcher's knife. I didn't think you'd pick up, you whisper. Again, that's Thank you. Yeah, I just want to share. <laughs> You've been quite successful, and your work is well written. I, I applaud what you're sharing. But what I want to know is, where does your poetic doubt begin, and where does it end? My poetic doubts. Um, 
Well, it begins it begins always with the first draft because uh, you know, okay. great book by Anne Lamott, uh, Bird by Bird. She talks about uh, I won't use the word, um, but she talks about bad first drafts. And first drafts are always a minefield. But um, my my poetic doubt always begins there with with what I'm writing. And and, and this is a, a, a an affliction, a self-imposed affliction that all writers feel, and that is that when you write something, if you don't write something great, you have these daily doubts that I should pack it in, I should get a job at, at a shoe store, or you know, go back to school and get an MBA, and, and or whatever. You, you, I should. I'm a terrible writer because this first draft is bad, and so my poetic doubts are all, always come back to a first draft, and and my my sort of um, the inadequacies I feel as a writer, but I I, I mm. force myself to work them out. I force myself to yes. sit with the work and hone it, and 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 sharpen the words and the language, and try and make things as clear as I can until it's what I what I envisioned. You know, I want to say I I think I cut you off. You were sharing about the poem you had just read to us, and you had some thoughts, and I cut them off. I'm so sorry. Please share now if you can remember them. uh, Well, I was just saying that this was, again, you know, my poetry tends to be about lived experience. The poem, the Mm -hmm. the previous poem, Fool's Gold, about the the homeless gentleman, wasn't really about my experience as much as what I imagined another person's experience to be. It's Mm -hmm. sort of a quasi-political poem in a sense, but... uh, Mm -hmm. yeah critical poem um but uh you know fool was about a, a negative interaction i had um with a family member and uh the unfortunate part michael is that she and i have not to this day um and this was a long time, this was a few years ago have still have mm-hmm. still not reconciled and, and patched things up things are still sort of uh, scattered. Our relationship is still in pieces. I can relate. I can relate. And see, that's why empathy is so important Michael. between um, the poet and the reader. I may not understand your story in totality, but what I attempt to do is to resonate with the feelings that go along with that story. That's that's what that's what gets me. What do you think about that concept of empathy? Jason? Are you there? Okay. I think I think I, I think I lost I think I lost it for a moment. Okay. <laughs> we were on a roll too, Jason. <laughs> what do you think about the concept of empathy <laughs> in terms of lived experiences? I think empathy is everything. I think empathy is something that unfortunately isn't taught. We teach kids mm-hmm. that STEM is the only thing they need to know to be productive humans in society. But uh we don't teach empathy, and empathy uh, is something that you can only really feel through reading. You you can see mm-hmm. an ex- 
you can see someone live their life on the screen, but when you read a book or you read a poem, you experience, you walk in their shoes. I mean, that's cliche, but you, you, you do walk no, in their shoes true. and you live their life with them. Mm-hmm. You know, your being here brings back so many memories of my being at Oregon State University. I was a professor of counseling education and supervision, and I traveled the country talking about the importance of empathy. And what I attempted to use was poetry as the way to do it. So uh, it brings back a lot of memories, my friend. A lot of yeah, memories. No, I'm, I, I, I wish I, I wish I'd gotten to be at Oregon State. We did it. It would have been your student. That would have been, yeah, been a lot of fun. <laughs> that would have been a lot of fun. Hey, please share a poem. Please share a poem, my friend. That's what I want to hear. All right, let's see. Let's see what this one's. This one's quite short. Um, this began as a, a response to my own syllabus this quarter. Um, I was trying to sort of. Uh, work out how I wanted my students to think about writing about their memories. So this is called Monument. And again, this is a a prose poem. You are memory, unstable, volatile, vaporous. I spread clay across your skin until you exist in solid form, a monument. Before this clay dries, I locate a place, a corner perhaps, to create a small opening, an aperture allowing your escape back into the coursing, pulsing, teeming world. But I retain the shape of your existence to remind me you were real. Thank you. You know, there are some poems that I like hearing twice. And I'd (laughs) like you to share that one again. Please share that one again. Really? Okay, okay, okay. All right. (laughs) You are memory, unstable, volatile, vaporous. I spread clay across your skin until you exist in solid form, a monument. Before this clay dries, I locate a place, a corner perhaps, to create a small opening, an aperture, allowing your escape back into the coursing, pulsing, teeming world. But I retain the shape of your existence to remind me you were real. Wow. Jason? Thank you. That's that's brand new. I wrote that last week. (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just wrote that. I like, I, like that. I said, I was trying to figure out. I was trying to figure out how to how to you know put my. I, I was trying to to make my students understand what it meant mm-hmm. to write about themselves and not be afraid because I because I'm teaching um, mostly first year students and probably the majority of them are are not English majors and. Yes. You know, I, I worked in a writing center down in California, um, mm-hmm. teaching uh, tutoring students, and most of my students were were STEM majors, psych majors, biology majors, uh, engineering majors, and I. And my my biggest thing was to try and show them that writing isn't difficult. 
We write mm-hmm. every single day. You and I, we write mm-hmm. every day. And, and not, and not mm-hmm. just because we're writers necessarily, but because we're human. I mean, you walk down the street, you might stop and send a text to someone you love and say, I love you. Or you mm-hmm. might write a grocery list. We all write. And the, my argument for the students when they come to see me with an essay they had problems with or something else, it would be to show them that writing clearly means thinking clearly. And it's something that the, we we must learn how to do as as humans, as modern mm-hmm. humans. We have to learn how to communicate clearly. We don't have to learn how to do... We don't have to know how to solve the Z-score of something or know statistics mm-hmm. or algebra or geometry. Don't need to know engineering or science, really, but we do need to know how to communicate. Wow. What do you think you've learned about yourself from your writing and teaching experiences? Who are you as a result of those? Who am I? Um, I, I, I like to think I'm... I'm humble as a result because I'm always reading things that make me go, wow, how did they do that? You know, <laughs> how did she come up with that? I mean, give you an example. I, I'm rereading or reread um, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison, and, and yes. the way she shapes the sentences or, or, or Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale. I, I read it. I, I, I deliberately checked out I go to the library constantly, and I, I deliberately checked out the large print version of this book so I could sort of linger over the words and feel like the like where she put a semicolon and feel that pause, feel that that breath, you know. And and I so I went went and did that again with with some Hemingway and got it in a large print so I could really feel the words and 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 taste them. Like I was saying, taste them like cake. I could I could feel them and and experience them in a visceral way, and 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 so that was that was really what 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 draws me to again draws me back to writing. And uh, wow, well, if you were a writer or poet during a different era, when or where would you want to exist? Anything you know about writing, and you know a lot. (laughs) I think creatively, I'd want to live in. uh, I mean, well, there's creatively and there's there's physically. I think physically, I'd Mm -hmm. want to live probably in uh, the Romantic period in England. Um, But physically, I'd want to live in in the Romantic era of of England. But um, creatively. So much incredible writing has come out of Russia in the uh, 19th century. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're looking at uh, early, early 19th century, late 18th century Pushkin. Um, you know, eight, 19th century Dostoevsky. We've got you know, Tolstoy, Turgenev. So many great books, and and it, mm-hmm. I feel I feel like if if I could live in a, in a time period, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to live under a czar, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to have lived in Gorky's Russia, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. Soviet wow. era Russia. But uh, if I could if I could lived if I could just been around all that that energy, if I could if I could if I could tie if I could tie Tolstoy's shoes, 
you know, I, I feel like that was a gift. So, mm. you know, my friend, we're almost at the end. It, it does perfectly. I was <laughs> going to say we're almost at the end of our poetic journey together. I don't want to keep you all night. I could, but I don't want to. And uh, what I want to know for you is, they've got a couple more things here. Now let's okay. go. Does knowing that your poems are published and out there in the world validate right. your being a poet? Or are you content knowing they're out of your system? I don't know, because I, I, I really didn't consider myself a poet. I mean, I don't really consider myself a poet. I consider myself a writer. I, I, I don't I don't think, I mean, I've always wanted to publish. And mm-hmm. I've always wanted to publish a novel, but I don't feel like that validates me as a person. I think... Um, but that leads to the question, what does validate me as a person? Um, I think loving other people validates you as a person. I think, mm. yeah, going out and, and experiencing the world, really experiencing the world, putting, putting your phone in your pocket and looking up at the trees and seeing a bird and, and, and or a flower and saying that's beautiful validates you as a person. Doing something, mm. doing something that, doing something to sort of reclaim your humanity, value, All right. you and me as a person, I think. Yes, you know, my friend. They say that to see the world with complete honesty, one should look to comedians, musicians, artists. I'm going to add writers and poets. What do you think emerges naturally from your work? What emerges from you? That's hard. That's that's tough. Um, what emerges from me, I think, is a sense of of a sense of place. Um, I, I I always tend to write about some of the same places, um, places that I've that I, I've the space in which I occupy. I mean, be it my hometown. Which is where my mm-hmm. the novel I'm working on um, I'm nearly finished with comes from it or takes place in, um, but that's tough. I, I really, I'm really not sure. That's all right. That's all right because we're all works in progress and we're on different Absolutely. stages of our journey. Absolutely. You know, before we go, would you please favor us with one more poem? Sure, sure. This is. Uh, This one's called The Foghorn. Darkness painted the walls and swallowed the room. He listened for the foghorn, hoping he'd stay awake long enough to hear it. The trumpeting foghorn, the surging and swelling of the horn, expanding across the water and up the coastline, emerging from beneath the city cold night air overfilled with sound the decay of the horn crossing land tumbling down streets but he was breathing softly when it finally came that's it wow where can listeners find your work my friend where should they go uh my website my website Tell us more about it. Tell us about your website. Well, it, it started <laughs> as as um, sort of a repository for 
my publications. I, I published mm-hmm. quite a bit. I think I published. Um, I think I published around sixty, sixty-five or eight. I think sixty-eight pieces in the last two years. Um, oh, poetry, wow. <laughs> creative nonfiction, uh, fiction, uh, short stories, book reviews, etc. And so my website has become. Uh, a nesting site, a nesting place for that work, and mm-hmm. I actually have all, all of it. Not not all of it, but the majority of my published work is on the website. Question for you: Do you think you were meant to be a writer? No. I, well, I think I think I, was, okay. I don't think I was meant to be a poet, but I think I was meant to be a writer. I. It's yes. funny because I, I I was a writer as a kid, and I when mm-hmm. I said I used to get Stephen King books for for holidays and I I went through school like like kindergarten or not kindergarten but elementary school and middle school um, thinking I wanted to be the next Stephen King so yeah I I do think I was meant to write Uh, I became a musician sort of by chance I I wound up Mm -hmm. in a high school band and one thing led to another I graduated high school and, and started studying jazz and learning to apply that to rock and roll, to punk rock wow. and turning music, and um, but but when I was after I was injured, I spent a long time with casts on one arm and a mm-hmm. year in a wheelchair, and so I I went back to writing at my mother's computer with one hand, getting the keys with mm. one hand, and writing is always it's writing is, is the, the one thing that's always been there. For me, and I always wrote as a musician in a band. I always wrote. I kept a journal. I've kept a journal mm-hmm. for probably twenty-four or five years. Not quite wow. daily, but oftentimes daily, and uh, just capturing capturing the day on the page, as I said. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was always going ne- to be a writer. I think. Yes, you were. <laughs> yes, you were. What's next for you? Where do you go from here? Um, well, the goal, like I said, I I, I want to finish this novel. It's uh, it began as my my MFA thesis and mm-hmm. uh, had some some really good uh, responses to it. And I at the time it was very short. It's it's now I think wow. uh, substantial. It's and and I want to publish it. And the goal the ultimate goal is to join a writing program somewhere here, mm-hmm. somewhere, on, somewhere on planet Earth and, and teach yes. people who want to write how to write better. Because that's, wow. I mean, I feel like I have to give the gift back that was given to me. Oh, oh, wonderful. You know, we've reached the end of the journey. I've run out of questions. <laughs> I've run out of questions. <laughs> I've run out of questions, man, and you answer every single one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> With no hesitation. You answer every single one. I think you are incredible. Well, I am so you. glad thank that I had an opportunity to reach out to you. I'm to join honored. this family. <laughs> and I I'm also think Well thank you. I also think that you are a man destined for greatness. For great Yes, destined for greatness. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I just do. In terms I've of your writing, like flattered. I said, 
Oh, it's the truth. Because your name, like I said again, Jason M. Thornberry. That's a name of distinction. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like John Brown. They, okay, of course, there's nothing wrong with John Brown. But <laughs> there are a million John Browns. But Jason M. Thornberry, he's the man. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's it, Jason. I want to thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. I really had a great time, and I'm honored and privileged to be to be a part of your show. Well, thank you, sir. All right. To all the listeners out there, you heard it. That's Jason M. Thornberry, destined for greatness as a writer. I want to thank you, listeners, as every week, and as you know, I share the following statement. Let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. All right, everybody. Good night. Take care, Jason. Thank you. All right. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.